Welcome. This is Talking Joy, creating joy, inner peace, and authentic connections. My name is Pam Rotelli-Robertson, and I am founder of lifestyle brand Talking Joy. As a certified spiritual director, I have been leading groups with the power of words, the strength of positivity, and the gift of joy. During our time together, our focus will be on simple spiritual practices that can be applied to your everyday life with the wisdom and support of others. Talking Joy talks to help you realize your value. I am so glad you're here. Simple, joyful, fun. Let's get talking. Will Robertson, welcome to the Talking Joy podcast. I'm so glad that you're here with me today to talk about nature and conservation uh, and about our environment, which is pertinent during these times. Uh, You know, we have wildfires happening on the West Coast and, um, you know, hurricanes and flooding and, and all sorts of things. And you keep hearing on the news that this is caused by climate change and you know, that sounds like such a big thing. And I thought maybe we could unpack some small ways that we can make a difference um, today. But I thought I'd start out a little bit about getting history about you and and your passion for nature. And um, so I wanted to ask you, what is your first memory of nature? When did you first, what was your first memory of remembering being out in nature and knowing that you had this passion or what sparked your passion? Well, uh, first of all, Thank you for having me. Um, that's a good question. Uh, and I've kind of been asked that question before in an essay prompt um, for school. I went to Middlebury College and I'm a conservation biology major. And in a class, I remember they asked me, like, what is my first moment distinctly in my lifetime when I realized what conservation was or um was able to see some sort of negative interaction between people and the environment. But for your question, I I can't really think of a specific time. Um, But when I was little, my dad used to bring me down to the woods uh, that we were fortunate enough to have across the street from our house. Um, And he would also bring me to a local lake and park that also had some woods and we used to go catch frogs and turtles and snakes and things like that and um really just see any wildlife and i remember um he would tell me stories about what he saw there because he grew up just on the other side of the woods as a kid he would tell me stories about um some of the stuff he used to see there um And I can't really think of a particular time that stands out to me, but it was just um, every time I went there, I wanted to go back. I was constantly begging him on weekends and things like that. When we had free time, I was like, oh, can we go to the swamp? Can we go to the swamp? Can we go to the swamp? And eventually he would give in and we'd go and, you know, we'd find time for it. But I would say as early as I can remember, I've been kind of hooked on wildlife and nature. Um, And how does it make you feel when you're out in nature, when you were a kid? Can you remember that feeling? Was there a sense of excitement when you would see things? I think it's definitely kind of an excitement type thing. Um, I just have and have had since I was little a fascination with 
everything around me when I'm in the woods, um, particular, particularly, I guess, some animals over others. Like I, I really have always liked snakes and reptiles and things like that, which are some of the animals that people typically don't like, or at least don't understand. Um, and I've just thought those and a lot of other creatures are really fascinating and I would read about them. So when I'd go out in the woods and actually encounter one of those things, like it, it would be super, super exciting. And don't you have a memory once of being in the woods across the street, trying to film like the spring peep frogs and people saw you and, and thought some kid was like sitting in the middle of a pond by himself. But you yeah. were really... <laughs> I mean, I, I've, along the way, I, I've always wanted to get pictures of what I find. And that's kind of developed into wildlife photography because over the years I just wanted like to be able to take these better pictures that, you know, I'd see on the internet or on TV or even the footage that I'd see in like nature documentaries. So I kind of worked my way up getting different cameras over the years and getting experience taking pictures of things. And one time in particular when I was younger, kind of finding my, my way with all that, I wanted to film these wood frogs in the ponds across the street that were breeding. And you never know that they're there. They sound just like what someone that doesn't know what that sounds like uh, would think that they're like ducks or something. But if you go to these ponds in like March, as soon as the, the ice thaws, there's hundreds of these frogs come up from underground. They can even, they can freeze solid over the winter and they have like an antifreeze in their blood and their heart rate stops. But then as soon as it gets warm enough, they all thaw out, go to these vernal pools, which are a type of wetland, start calling. And um, I remember one time specifically that did happen. I was sitting out on like a fallen tree in the middle of this pond with my camera. And I was there for hours just sitting still waiting for them to start calling again because um, they were afraid that I was there and someone did see me and I had no idea what I was doing. Now, I heard a, a famous photographer recently on Instagram wrote that, you know, people see his photos and they think, wow, you know, that's incredible that you caught that shot. And he said, but behind that shot, you know, it's sort of like a great athlete that he sat for days and weeks, maybe in unbelievable, you know, weather conditions waiting for that right moment to catch that photo. Um, and it sounds like you have a lot of patience that you as a kid, had a lot of patience waiting to see, you know, what you were looking for to photograph or to videotape in nature. Um, and you're still doing that. You know, you have a fam famous YouTube channel um, that is called Will Robertson Wildlife that, that people could check out. Um, one of the things that I caught that you said is that uh, a lot of the, the reptiles and things that you're interested in, a lot of people have... Uh, a misunderstanding about them. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, so historically, snakes and reptiles and spiders and things like that have been represented as evil or harmful creatures. And many of them, if we're talking about snakes, are harmful to people if you were to get bitten, um, though many or the majority are not. Uh, but even since like, say in the Bible, 
you know, um, snakes have been represented as this like malicious evil force and kids when they're really little are taught by their parents, this fear of snakes. I don't think it's so much a natural fear. Um, I think it's like a learned fear. And, uh, as a result, you know, a lot of people that live in rural areas, if a snake wanders into their yard, they'll take a shovel and cut its head off. Um, or people maybe that don't get out in the woods too often will see a snake in a park and they'll go running the other way and, and think that it's out to get them. But realistically, snakes don't want anything to do with people. Um, they will only bite in self-defense. They don't chase people. And even the venomous ones will really, really want to get away from you if you encounter them. It actually often takes a lot of provoking and irritation to actually get bit by a venomous snake. So in my eyes, the fear that people have for snakes and a lot of animals in the woods, whether it's bears or spiders or whatever it might be, oftentimes it's unjustified and it's kind of based on misunderstanding and misinformation. So what would you want people to know about reptiles about snakes and and things that you just mentioned that most of us are fearful of and certainly wouldn't want one in my house and um because i would love to educate people on so you see the beauty in it and a lot of people see the fear in it so tell me a little bit about the contrast there well i mean the more you learn about them the more you realize that they're these beautiful misunderstood and valuable organisms in an ecosystem. They're incredibly important in the food web and um, they have a lot of human benefits having them around. For example, a timber rattlesnake, the rattlesnake native to the Northeastern United States. I think I remember reading a paper that one rattlesnake could consume I think up to 500 ticks in a year because the ticks are on the rodents that they eat and the rodents are the vectors for Lyme's disease. So having those around controls um, the presence of Lyme's disease in that environment. Another human service that a venomous snake um, could serve, for an example, uh, copperheads, which are one of the most kind of maligned and feared snakes um, in the United States. Everyone talks about them. Everyone misidentifies other snakes that are harmless as copperheads. It's like this big, scary, not really so scary snake in the woods. Um, but they're actually using the venom to do some research on a, like a treatment for breast cancer. So there's all sorts of benefits to having these animals around. Um, and they, they do have a place in the environment around us. Yeah, no, I'm so glad you mentioned that because that's definitely not something that I knew or that the average person might know is the benefit in the actual ecosystem or food chain, like you were saying. And I'm sure that, you know, big birds of prey probably eat snakes. Um, so they're probably a food source too. And, you know, on the opposite side of it, they eat rodents, but then perhaps they're eaten by, by other things too. 
Um, so who were some of your mentors when you were growing up that helped um, sort of mold you into this passionate, uh, you know, environmentalist that you've become? Well, primarily, I would say my parents. I talked about my dad a little bit, but also my mom um, and both of them for just being super supportive of what I do. And, um, you know, I do like a lot of crazy stuff that a lot of parents probably wouldn't let their kids do and go to a lot of crazy places and crazy lengths to see some really hard to find wildlife. So they're super supportive with that. And I'm very thankful for that. Um, additionally, in terms of, of mentors, um, one that's kind of cliche is Steve Irwin um, and maybe Jeff Corwin. When I was a kid, I used to watch Steve Irwin on TV all the time. I thought, you know, he was a great, passionate guy. And um, I, I w- he was like my idol when I was little. And I remember when he died, just like sobbing. It was like the end of the world to me. Uh, it was so upsetting. Um, but he had an impact on me. And if you talk to a lot of other passionate ecologists or reptile lovers or wildlife conservationists these days, a lot of them will say the same thing that Steve Irwin had this profound impact on their lives um, when they were little. Um, On a more local level, uh, John Soreo, um, a naturalist in the Poconos um, and outdoor columnist for the, uh, the local newspaper in the, the Pocono, Pocono record. Yes. Like, yeah, it was the Pocono record. Um, and, and for a lot of other reasons that I, I'm not doing a justice now. He was this really renowned naturalist in Pennsylvania and beyond. And he worked at a hotel next door to the, um, town that I grew up going to there in the summer times and uh he wrote books i ended up finding one of his books about reptiles and amphibians and that's how i found out about him and paging through it seeing the different um the different types i could find around me and then going out and trying to find those and eventually i started going on hikes with him up at sky top um and talking to him and watching videos that uh they had of him on the internet when he was on like local TV stations. And I, I just thought he was like the coolest guy and he retired sometime when I was still pretty young, but after him um, who filled in his footsteps was, um, was Rick Koval. Rick also does the newspaper thing. Now he also works at the hotel and, uh, Rick was also this, or still is this very prominent naturalist. Um, and I still have a relationship with him. And, um, since I was pretty young, I would go over to the hotel and hang out with him and he'd show me rattlesnakes and things like that. And not, uh, let's just clarify, not at the hotel, but he was the (laughs) hotel naturalist that would take people out who were visiting on hikes and walks and things like that. And I'm sure he wasn't necessarily supposed to be doing this but he could tell that I was passionate about this stuff and he would be like all right well you know have your mom drop you off here at 7 a.m 
and I have like two hours before work, I'll drive you back behind the gates and we'll go to the rattlesnake den or whatever. And so we would do stuff like that. And, um, um, I'm, I'm also really thankful for that and other people along the way that have kind of led to me being who I am. Yeah. And probably, uh, when you were younger, you were a boy scout. Yeah. And you got exposed to uh, a tremendous, well, some really cool people, including, um, Keith Halper, yeah, uh, who was a great mentor who exposed you to a lot of the camping, which has probably come in very handy as you spend a lot of time outdoors. Yeah, he is Mr. Helper is definitely someone else that comes to mind. That was that was a pretty cool experience. Yeah, I think it's so important to look back at our lives and recognize the people that supported us especially in a passion when we're, when we're really driven towards something, you know, I think we all have our unique special gifts and your passion and gift has clearly been, you know, this, this attention to and wanting to be in and around nature and, but also to share it. Um, And I thought I would lead into um, for the last six years, you have been nature will um, the camp club naturalist, um, where you spend the summers in the Pocono mountains in Pennsylvania. Um, and tell me about that. You're so good at teaching kids and being with kids. Um, tell me, how does it feel to be sort of on the, on the flip side of that and sharing the excitement that you have then with new kids that are sort of coming up the ranks and educating them on, on all the reasons why we should respect and, and honor you know, all of nature, not just the. So that job just kind of was, I, I don't know, I just kind of inherited that job from a, a friend's mom in the community who was previously the naturalist. And the reason that I, I, I've done it for like six years or something now, and the reason that I've enjoyed it so much is because I see kids as like kind of a clean slate. Like, you approach a pool of really young kids and show them a snake and like nine out of 10 of them aren't afraid of it. But if you approach a bunch of adults and show them a snake, the same thing, most of them are probably going to be afraid of it unless they've learned otherwise somehow. Um, but little kids are, you know, it's really easy to make an impression on them and teach them to be respectful of nature and potentially inspire them to, um, to make a difference themselves someday. I was thinking about this recently and talking to someone about it. I, I guess that job is so appealing to me for that reason, just being able to inspire kids. And let's say out of a pool of like 30 kids that have done nature with me for years, I would say like 25 out of 30 of those kids would not be afraid of snakes and spiders and whatever, you know, I mean, frogs (laughs) and, you know, they would be well-versed and not afraid of nature and that might lead to good decisions later on, or them at least being respectful of nature. And then I would say 15 of those 30 kids are at least somewhat like remotely interested in nature. And now in their free time, they want to go out and find frogs and stuff like that. 
and then maybe like five to 10 of those 30 kids are like, you know, kind of acting like I did when I was little. And they're like wanting to get outside and, and look for stuff all the time. They're constantly, you know, when they see me in the community, like, Hey, wait, 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 wait. can we, can we go look for snakes? Can we go do this? Can we do that? Asking me questions about where to find stuff. And let's say out of that pool of 30 kids, or maybe out of those five to 10 really, really interested kids, like one or two of those grows up to be a conservationist or an environmentalist or, or even like a CEO of a company that makes a more environmentally conscious decision because he remembers from when he was little that he cares about that stuff. That's why I do that job. And that's why I enjoyed that job so much is just thinking about the impact that I could have on these people so that they could have an impact. Yeah. And, and this is really one of the reasons that I wanted to talk to you today, because I just wanted you to share all of that, to drive home the idea that the more time we spend in nature with our families and with our kids and introducing them to things that might be a little out of our comfort zone um, or introducing them to somebody like you that's passionate about it, that can, that can teach the kids and show them the more comfortable they'll be. And like you said, sort of has this an amazing ripple effect where somebody might not do the work you're doing, but they'll remember the impact it had on them as a child. And they'll want to continue to make a difference, you know, maybe in some corporate job where they care for the environment more than they would have if they hadn't been exposed to nature. Um, so where where do you see yourself going from, from here? Like, what are your hopes as far as the environment and making a difference and what, what changes would you like to see? Like, I, I know my experience, you know, with, with my teaching is that little things add up to big changes. You know, if I do a little something different every single day and I add it to my life that, you know, a couple of weeks or a couple of months from now, I'll be, something will shift and I'll, I'll be different because of it. And I know the same thing about the environment that every little decision that I make throughout the day, as far as my waste and my impact on, you know, on my purchases and everything that I do and taking, you know, cloth bags to the grocery store versus plastic and using disposable bottles and um, all of those things add up. And so what, what would you like to see or what, what are your hopes for people to? I personally am kind of in that awkward post-college phase of looking down a bunch of different career paths and kind of deciding what I want to do. For a long time, I wanted to be like an ecologist, um, someone doing field work um, and nitty gritty research on animals out in the wild or plants. And I think that stuff's really cool. And I still might do that. I'm not, you know, I definitely plan on doing some of that, but personally, I don't know that that's exclusively the impact that I want to have. Um, I realize that what I'm really passionate about is influencing others to care about the environment or inspiring others to, to make a difference themselves. So Right now, I would say I'm most strongly looking towards um, dealing with media that influences conservation, whether that be like 
assisting in some sort of documentary film making or uh, working on the media for some environmental group, something like that, I think could have um, the impact that I'm looking for. And that's kind of why I do my whole YouTube channel thing is just an oppor- it's it's just an opportunity to reach a larger pool of people than say, the 50 kids or I don't know, 75 kids that I see in uh, summer camp on YouTube. I might there, you know, I've had a video with like a million and a half views and like, you know, that's a lot more people than there are in, in camp. Mm-hmm. Um, but and so yeah, what's, what is your overall message? I guess that's what I'm getting at. I mean, that's, that's tricky. I, I just, it's kind of hard to answer. I just feel like we're living, humans are living in a way that is not at all sustainable. And a lot of people have no connection to nature whatsoever. And I, you kind of need to be careful with the way you navigate that because exposure to nature is also a privilege in a lot of cases. Like I was incredibly privileged to be able to go to the Pocono Mountains in Pennsylvania over the summer when I was a kid and um, privileged to have parents that support me and a dad that would take me out to the woods all the time when I was a kid. So um, it can be tricky to navigate, but I think everybody needs to be more conservation-minded and the literal way that we interact with the world around us needs to completely change and the way our society is structured needs to change. The world is going to need to go through some massive change in the next couple years or the next few decades or else it's going to be a huge problem. Um, And would you say that that shift sort of happened over this, you know, past year and a half with COVID that, you know, at least from what, from my vantage point, you know, living in suburban New Jersey, noticed that people were, you know, planting gardens in their backyard. It seemed to me that people were getting reconnected with the earth. And I, I feel like, and maybe it was the industrial, industrial revolution that, you know, pulled us away from, tending to the earth and living off of it and in it and in that environment. And we sort of got away from even being connected to it. We forget. Um, and like you were saying, you know, there's urban people that live in cement cities that don't really necessarily have the opportunities that, that you have had to just go across the street and walk through the woods. Do you sense that people are, there's a call right now to get back into that connection with the earth and in thinking about, you know, where our food came from and the whole chain that got it to our table and to our plate and versus just convenient foods and not really sort of just feel like we've been living with our blinders on. Yeah. I would say that there was some good coming out of quarantine like that for some people. Um, Having the time to get reconnected and think about these things I would also say, though, that it's not enough. Like, what we're doing so far is not enough. There, I would say not enough change came from 
quarantine. And I mean, I know the origins of COVID are a little bit of a toss up right now. Um, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm no expert on this, but one of the leading theories of where it came from is that it was a zoonotic disease coming from, you know, an animal like say a pangolin or a bat or something like that. And if that's the case, you could argue, or you could just say that the entire pandemic is a direct result of humans encroaching on habitat basically, or it's a result of habitat destruction, or it's a result of the illegal wildlife trade. No one really thought about that enough that this like worldly, like life altering event originally is the result of an inner, a negative interaction between humans and the environment. And like, that was one of the takeaways for me or for me, you know, um, And out of that came this huge opportunity to change the way that we operate, you know, Um, if there was ever a time for like massive societal change, it, it was coming out of quarantine, but I wouldn't necessarily say that we have seen the change that we need yet. Um, there's definitely a lot of activism coming out of that and a lot of positive change, but uh, I would not say that humans are doing enough. And what, what, what can I do? Like, what can I do in my ordinary simple life um, to start contributing, you know, today? Like um, I was talking about like all those pebbles, you know, lead up to a big pile. If, if I could, you know, I want to make a difference. And I think that a lot of people do. I, I think that we need direction and, and ideas and, you know, how can I teach, you know, my kids, my grandkids someday. A lot of environmental impact or a lot of the negative envir- environmental impact that we as humans are having does not necessarily fall on the individual where it's, it's complicated because there's kind of an uneven distribution of, of, in, of responsibility for the environmental impact that we're having, where a lot of it falls on, say, the U.S. compared to other countries in the world or just really large developed nations are having really big environmental impacts compared to a lot of other countries. And then on a finer scale a lot of large corporations in the United States take a lot more responsibility for that environmental impact than just say the individual. You could also say in the US that big wealthy families living these kind of lavish and elaborate over the top lives probably have a substantially larger environmental impact than much less wealthy families. All that being said, I remember someone that I lived with saying to me earlier um, this year when we were talking about the environment, like, you know, kind of making that statement. I, I was saying something about some behavior that he was doing that was not environmentally friendly, not in an aggressive way. We were just kind of joking around. And then he was saying, like, oh, well, you know, it doesn't matter because, you know, 
these, you know, X, Y, and Z big corporations are responsible for this percentage of our environmental impact or, you know, whatever, you know, making his impact sound really, really small. And it kind of stuck out to me because it's like, yeah, you might be right. And you might not be making that big of a difference by, um, by changing your behavior. But it's also kind of a cop out, you know, it's like saying like, oh, well, I mean, I won't make a difference anyway. So I'm, I'm not going to try. I'm not going to, you know, use a reusable shopping bag. I'm not going to cut out single use plastics. I'm not going to reduce my red meat consumption. I'm not going to whatever, you know, like I'm not going to start using a reusable water bottle. But um, I, I actually wrote about it in an essay in this one uh, in sustainability class. And the professor responded to my analysis on that with a quote. I'm going to butcher the quote, so I'm just going to give you like the, um, the spark notes of it. But it was basically like this, it was just this short little story about someone walking along the beach picking up starfish that had washed up from the storm and throwing them back into the ocean. And someone comes up to them and says something along the lines of, Hey, like, you know, there's miles and miles of beach down that way with like millions of starfish all washed up on the beach. Like, you know, what you're doing doesn't make a difference. And the person throwing the starfish into the ocean says, Oh, well, it makes a big difference for the starfish. Doesn't it? Mm. Um, and that's kind of how I like to think about it. So in my opinion, yes, the actions you do take make a difference, maybe in some areas more than others, like in terms of global climate change and things like that. Um, you know, maybe your impact is smaller than, say, stopping traffic and helping a turtle cross the road or something like that, because that makes a big difference to the turtle and that turtle getting to live and you know, reproduce makes a big difference for the ecosystem, making the woods around that road healthier and yeah. more intact. So, and that ties into Will with what we were talking about with parents. Um, somebody else I had on a different podcast was saying that they were out for a walk and they saw a dad and a little girl, and the little girl said something like, "Oh, a spider," and she squished it. And the father said, "Why did you do that?" And she's like, "Cause they're scary," or whatever it was. And the person that I was interviewing on this other podcast was saying that it was such a missed opportunity from the parent to say mm. to the kid, actually, the spider does a lot of good and this is why, and this is why we need them. And, you know, you, you were outside, you should just leave it alone. And, and ever since I interviewed that woman, and I had been doing this for a long time anyway, but sometimes I kill them, but I've been picking them up and and taking them outside back out into their environment if I don't want them inside. But it starts in the home and we can educate our kids. But what I'm hearing from you is that it's very complicated and the picture is much bigger than just my little self. But yes, I can make an impact. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that you mentioned to me recently that I've been thinking about a lot and I've been wanting to do and figuring out how I can incorporate it into my website or how I can advertise for it. And I think that our conversation would be the perfect place to do that. And you talked about, um, and I would, I would like for you to explain it, but about the rainforest and about making a small donation to the rainforest. Can you tell me that the impact, like the dollar amount and what that impact has and 
and, and why somebody would want to do that, because that is something that's, that somebody like me who lives in the United States and, you know, suburban outside of New York City can, can certainly afford um, and want to do to make a difference. Yeah. So, um, like I said, there's like a million different things to do and so many different ways to approach this and a lot of ways to make a difference. Um, and there's definitely ways to make a difference that aren't financial. Um, if that's not something that's available to you, but, um, let's say you are someone that has money to spare or you're living a comfortable life. Um, one organization in particular that I researched for a project for school, um, is the Rainforest Trust. And this is just one organization. I'm sure, you know, you could put it under a magnifying glass and find some flaws like any other organization. But I did research it pretty intensely for this project. And I would say that I feel pretty strongly about what it's doing. And I think they're making a really positive impact and they're doing it in an intelligent way. And basically what the Rainforest Trust does is it takes your donations and it uses that money working with um, in-country NGOs um, to purchase land in the rainforest and preserve it forever as part of a new national park or a new preserve or whatever the, you know, the preserved land might end up being, it's not going to be logged. It's not going to be destroyed. Um, and so I guess what they end up doing is the first phase is like they're, they're identifying these areas of the world that have extremely high biodiversity and are in danger of being destroyed for logging, farming, whatever it may be. Um, an example of that is like the Choco, um, a section of rainforest, I think in Ecuador, that is like incredibly biodiverse. They've preserved like, I, I would need to look at the website, but a lot of land there. And surprisingly, land in say, you know, the rainforest, whether it's in Africa or South America or Australia, wherever they do work, might not cost as much as you think. Um, so with a donation of, let's say, $15 or something like that, or $9 or, you know, depends on where it is, that might be an entire acre of rainforest. So I have a friend that sells calendars and donates like seven thousand to like i forget what i think he donated over ten thousand dollars last year to the rainforest trust and it ended up preserving like this massive area of land and it the website's very transparent it like you can choose where you're preserving that land and your money just goes like directly to buying acres of rainforest you're talking rain. about lunch money in new york city you're talking about not even lunch <laughs> Well, um, a cup but, of coffee and, and a donut. Yeah, yeah, that too. Um, but a point I'll make, I guess, is think about like, what is $100 to you? Or what is $100 to, 
you know, someone living in a wealthy suburb of New York, odds are, you know, I, I'm, I'm generalizing here, but odds are $100 is nothing to them compared to what it would be, I don't know, to someone that is a lot less fortunate, right? So the impact that people with money can have on causes like this are pretty substantial. And they possess this ability to impact the world in some ways that other people really don't have the privilege of being able to do. And often they aren't using that privilege. You know, they aren't donating to the Rainforest Trust. So they aren't, I'm not saying it necessarily needs to be monetary. Let, let's say, you know, you're a wealthy person with a stable job and that gives you more, I don't know, I'm spitballing here, but in some, you know, in some other way that gives you privilege to give your time or give something that's not financial, or say if you're a kid that just graduated college with wealthy parents and you come from privilege, you have not necessarily, you know, a, necessarily a financial impact, or you don't need to give something financial to make an impact, but you have a bigger safety net and you might be able to take more of a risk by getting into, you know, some impactful but low profit job field. Yeah. Tell me what the uh, rebuilding the rainforest or, re, you know, what does that do for the environment? Well, um, how do we benefit from it? So they're not really rebuilding the rainforest um, that I know of. The Rainforest Trust, it's, it's more preserving what's already there and preventing it from being cut down or burnt, like slashed and burned for agriculture. Um, but the rainforest is incredibly important. They call it the, the lungs of the earth. Thank you. Because, That's what I was getting at. Right. It's, it's a carbon sink. So basically all this vegetation there and life takes in carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and sequesters it in the plants themselves, um, in the trees, in the roots, in the dirt, in the ground, um, and produces more oxygen. Um, so it's really, really important. Um, and we will see <laughs> certain doom yeah. if we do not. I have mean, it is, isn't that impactful to think about the lungs of the earth? Um, and I love quotes and I keep think hearing these words in my head that if we don't take care of our home, we're going to have nowhere to live. Um, and that's what I'm hearing from you today too. You know, and I think it starts with our children. It starts by educating ourselves and by taking care of the environment by if we can afford to give back, we should give back. Um, and if we can't afford it, you know, economically, then we can, you know, give of our time that if we all do our part, you know, in corner, you know, in corporations and home people and their families uh, contribute that, that we really can make an impact that, that it's not too late. All right. Just, just to hammer home my point, here's an example from the Rainforest Trust. Um, one of their projects they need, I think they need, they need $8 million, which sounds like a lot, 
But their goal in this particular project, one of many that they have going right now, is um, in the Central African Republic, they want to save this wilderness, unprotected land that has lions, chimpanzees, and elephants, and other lots of other endangered species. And it says that an acre costs a dollar and fifty-four cents. So forgetting the big picture of how much money they need to raise, and by the way, they raised uh, $3,999,000 so far. So they're, you know, almost halfway to their goal. But that aside, $1.54 or whatever it was. Now, you know, you could buy a new hot tub for, let's say, I don't know, $1,000, whatever I don't know how much a hot tub costs, but <laughs> you could also preserve, say a hot tub is $1,000, you could preserve a thousand acres of undeveloped land in, in Central Africa, you know? The, the lungs of our earth Yeah, that, that we need to breathe and fresh air and... At the risk of this all sounding very like kind of colonial and like you know rich people from the u.s coming over to you know that's like you know somewhere that somewhere that's not theirs and there's this concept called fortress conservation where you're going and like keeping people out that belong there that's not what the rainforest trust does i did a lot of research on that um they work with the people locally already living there to like take care of the land and officially preserve it um so it's it's not like that at the risk of sounding like that. Yeah, no, I, I love that. And I, what a great reminder. And so to make a difference, you know, obviously we've talked about your life and your passion. Um, I admire that. You know, I always envied people that knew what they were going to do. And not many of us do. You know, a lot of us change careers or and, and you might, you know, who knows, but you've really been passionate since a little kid about wildlife and about the environment. And you've had a lot of really cool experiences and you're, you're able to share that on a, a really big platform, you know, on YouTube and through social media. And I appreciate all that you're doing to educate people and educate kids about the importance of, of our home, you know, where we all live, you know, we think we're separate, but we're all, you know, together and, uh, and all the decisions that I make affect you and affect everyone else. Um, what would you say that your words that you live by or your motto? That's a good question. Um, I would say going back to the whole starfish thing, I think, I think that whole quote has a, has a big impact on me. So I guess the idea that action or change starts with the individual. I love that story. And you know, if you go on the Talking Joy website and under uh, the Will Robertson interview, if you click on it, I'll have a page and it will lead people to your YouTube channel, to your Instagram, and uh, we'll have this quote in full there. And we can also, uh, is it your friend Bob that has the wildlife calendar that donates the money to the Rainforest Trust? Yeah, he's probably not going to start doing that until... Uh, November or something, but, um, but we'll also have a link, you know, perhaps to his, because he does a wildlife photography and he makes a calendar 
every year that that I have received for many years as a gift, and uh, you know, it's the link the rainforest trust, and then and, and and I obviously I will link the rainforest trust. Um, but the great words I feel like that you are you know or you're impressing on us is that pick up the starfish, you know, take care of those individual each and everything because. I make an impact, you make an impact. And let's be conscious and aware of our choices and you know, and and how we're we're treating the environment because it's our home. And you know, we want to feed those great big lungs of the earth. I've never heard that phrase before. That's gonna stick with me. I love that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So thank you for your wisdom and you know, for sharing all of your uh your great life. So far, you're so young, but all of your great life experiences, you have a lot of a lot of wisdom and a lot of passion for things that are really important. So thank you. Of course. Thanks for having me. I'm Pam Rotelli Robertson, and you have been listening to Talking Joy, talks that help you realize your value while creating authentic connections with others. For more information about our talk today or to get in touch, you can find us at talkingjoy.org. And to keep the encouragement going, you can also follow Talking Joy on Instagram and Facebook. Simple, joyful, fun. Thanks for listening. This is Talking Joy.